the global order is changing. Neoliberalism is under unprecedented strain. There's a general sense that the rules by which our societies have been structured for the last several decades have broken down, and that our leaders and our institutions have failed us. If neoliberalism was the economic base to the globalization superstructure, what will the consequences of this shift be on the lives of ordinary people? Join Globalization Cafe as we offer uncompromising political and economic analysis on the global issues that affect our everyday lives. Because the political conversation matters. Welcome to part two of my discussion with Jeff Halper, the director of the Israeli Committee Against House Demolition. For part one, have a look on our website. I began by asking about the comparisons between Israel and Canada as settler colonial states and how best to think about issues of decolonization. I mean, whatever you have to do in Canada, look, you can't stop being a settler colonial society in Canada. I mean, you're not going to go back to 17, whatever it is. You know, so the point, the point is, how do we, you know, the whole concept of restorative justice, what do we have to do to redeem our country from settler colonialism? And here, I think it's the same thing. Uh, you know, you're not going to go back to 1904 or 1897 or whatever, 1948. The question now is, how do you decolonize Zionism gen genuinely? How do you create a society here? That isn't. I'm, I'm not saying let's forgive and forget and go on, just move on. Of course, we have to deal with the injustices and the structures of inequality and oppression that exist. But that's the point. You know, you can, you can, that's why I write in my articles about dismantling the matrix of control. You have to dismantle Zionist colonialism. And, uh, and, and there has to be a plan. What does that mean? We need a plan. What does it mean to decolonize Zionism? What does it mean to create an equal society here? And what does it mean in terms of, um, you know, our refugees return? Great. But what about their land? What about financial compensation? What, I mean, it's not just, you know, dismantling Zionism also means, you know, the, the process of Judaization, the other side of it was de-Arabization. So now if we're going to, in a way, de-Judaize, <laughs> which is a part of decolonizing Zionism, you have to re-Arabize. How do you do that? What does that process mean? You see, there's processes you really have to do. I mean, I'm not, it's not but you have to have a program for that. And that we don't have at this stage. Okay, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, I was thinking about this. People have been talking to me uh, about this for a long time, because I always bang on about the occupation and, and people say, we should start talking about Zionism. Never really comfortable with doing that. And I think about Northern Ireland, for instance, and I think about, for instance, loyalist communities in Northern Ireland. And if I went around telling loyalist communities, you can no longer be British, you're not British, you're, you're, it's, it's time to give up on that, you should become Irish, you should stop doing this kind of stuff, they, they would reject that immediately. And they, 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 they've become even more resistant because that's what drove them to be loyalist in the first place, or in their view. Uh, but they're, so what effectively has happened is there's an agreement where nobody talks about it. And that that's good to get you to a point, but it, it hasn't led to a sustainable solution, as we see now, 
political instability can put it really in jeopardy again. So you're talking about a step beyond that. It's like you don't you don't make people entrench themselves in their identities. Perhaps you don't challenge it at that fundamental level, but you de disassemble the apparatus around it. Exactly. That's right. Okay. Because you're never going to get them to agree. Uh, you know, reconciliation does not come before a political a settlement. You never get people to agree that, yes, we were racist, we were terrible, it was an awful thing we did with Zionism. Now, that's not going to happen. So you, what you do is you, I mean, like in South Africa, you, you or, or Mississippi, you know, you, 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 you create new structures. You see, in, in South Africa, there's new structures of, of, of relationships. It's not great economically, but in terms of the racial, certainly there has a huge, been a huge change in terms of the racial relationships and so on. Um, and it doesn't mean that Afrikaners in church <laughs> or at home can't continue to be racist and apartheid people and everything else. Who, I'm not going to ask them to give up the Dutch Reformed Church and everything, you know, as long as they can't act on it or as long as they act in conformance with the new South Africa that's not apartheid, you can't tell people uh, you, you don't believe this. And, and, you know, even if we have one state here, the, the Israeli Jews, even if they become part of Palestine, are not going to stop being Zionists or Jews. National, and the Palestinians aren't going to stop being Palestinians. That's why I talk about a binational state. We're not going to become voters like in Saskatchewan or something. You know, we're, they're, 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 there's two national movements here. Now, now, what you have to do is create a situation in which neither national movement is able to dominate. And that's the democratic part of the state. Um, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, even with binationalism, you build in a structure in which you acknowledge that they exist, that they have rights of language and their institutions and their identities and so on. Uh, and then hopefully, you see, you create a civil society as well. It'd be civil marriage. It'd be universities that are integrated, schools. You know, you'd have a choice if you want to stay in your community more or if you want to integrate more. And hopefully over time, uh, you'd get the emergence of a civil society that isn't Jewish or Palestinian or religious or nationalistic. That's a new society in a way. That's in a way this happened in Jordan. Jordan started as a completely artificial entity, but today there really is a Jordanian uh, identity and a culture and so on. So, you know, it's it's a it's a kind of normalization in which you have to say at the same time that you're guaranteeing equality, you know, you're also letting people be where they are and and evolve. I think. Yeah, well, actually, Jordan came kept coming to my mind when I was reading your document. Actually, it's thought about the uh, uh, Joseph Massad's book about the creation of a national identity through institutions. And I suppose in Israel you've had that with institutions like the military and, and, and all sorts uh, to create this. So I suppose you could create a different one. <laughs> but let, let me let me move on and ask you about, uh, you, you refer to the binational state, which is part of the one state paradigm. Can you sort of explain what that is again? Um, but look, the idea, my idea is this, that you, you have to have a genuinely democratic, a genuine, a genuine democracy. One person, one vote, one parliament, you know, equal rights, everybody 
lives wherever they want to live. No group has any privilege over the others. The security services and the army completely integrated. In other words, no group has any uh, basis upon which it can it can dominate the other. Absolute equality and a democracy. Okay, but at the same time, recognizing that we're not just a bunch of individuals here, that there are two national groups in this country. I mean, you can't ignore that. For the last century, the Palestinians have been trying to fight for their national identity, their rights, their culture, their lands. I mean, they're not going to just pretend to be just individuals without any of that, that they're not Palestinians somehow. And the same with Israeli Jews, you know, with the Zionist movement and everything else. They, they have a national identity. So my concept of binationalism is <clears throat> that you have a constitution that we don't have today that embodies the principle of binationalism. It simply says we acknowledge that there are two national groups here. It doesn't give them any power. It doesn't give them any clout one over the other. We acknowledge that they exist and they have a right to exist. They have a right to their language. They have a right to their institutions. They have a right to their cultures. And parliament would be limited. Now, every parliament is limited by a constitution. So, so parliament could not pass laws that harm the integrity of either national group. Because, of course, part, there is also, uh, there's also a practical uh, consideration here. Israeli Jews are going to be in the minority. Especially, I mean, they, they will be, but especially if refugees come back. So for an Israeli Jew, and I, you see, what I'm trying to do is develop a formulation that's just and workable. Well, it isn't just academic. I mean, the hell with academic. I want something that I can sell to people. The first question an Israeli Jew is going to ask, and legitimately, is, well, what's going to prevent that parliament or the Palestinian majority from doing to me what we do to them today? The tyranny of the majority. Passing laws that discriminate against us. What would prevent Palestine from becoming Algeria? Well, the answer to that is binationalism. That it would that each group would have the right to be in this country, the right to 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 its to its culture, to its integrity, and that's protected by the Constitution. Now relax. If the Palestinians are 90% of the population, as an Israeli Jew, I don't have to worry. I don't have to count babies because because my right to be here as an individual, but as a collective, is guaranteed. Now, that guarantee doesn't cost Palestinians anything. I mean, they're not, they're not, Israel doesn't get it, Israeli Jews don't get any privilege from that. Neither do Palestinians. But they get a certain layer of protection. You see that, that, that uh, this can't turn into to Algeria. And then they, with that, I think with that, that double protection, I think you could actually sell this to Israeli Jews. And, my, and that's my concern. Now, there are, there are a lot of Palestinians that don't have a problem with binationalism, but there are a lot that do. That's the big, that's the big uh, uh, discussion we're into in today, that there are a lot of Palestinians, especially intellectuals, that reject the idea of binationalism, which I understand. You know, from their point of view, it smacks of legitimizing Zionism, legitimizing settler colonialism, 
and they don't want to go there. I'm just saying, you know, you're right. <laughs> but you got to bite that bullet. If you want to resolve this, you got to bite that bullet. And the Israelis have a couple bullets they have to bite, too. The Israeli Jews can't have a Jewish state anymore. I mean, that's kind of a big bullet to bite. So it's not that, you know, you're the only ones giving up something. And if we can, if we can start to work through that and get to a, a joint formulation, I think we could generally come up with a program that's sellable. So just to, just to clarify, I mean, for people who come to this idea for the first time, what would it look like on the ground? Are you talking about separate communities or are you talking about people just living next door to each other like they would in New York City? Or... Yeah. I mean, first of all, I would see it, I, I would say it's, there's a choice like in every society. I mean, the United States or Canada, or Canada, um, you know, you don't have, you, I mean, everybody can live everywhere, right? There's no, you can't, but you have Jewish neighborhoods, you have Pakistani neighborhoods, you have Chinese neighborhoods. I mean, people, you know, sometimes like to live with each other. There's nothing illegal about it. If I go to Chinatown, it's kind of a nice thing. I mean, now, if, if the Chinese would say no non-Chinese can live here or white people say black people can't live here, that's that, that you can't do. But nevertheless, you know, people often gravitate. That doesn't bother me. And I think over time, uh, as long as it's not based on, on, you know, some legal kind of thing, people can, they can choose. You know, if I'm a religious Jew, I'd probably want to live in a closed community. I mean, they do here in Israel, the ultra-Orthodox. I mean, it's not, it has nothing to do with Palestinians. They don't want to associate with me. And they have their own community. I don't feel that taking away from my rights in any way. So with that, in other words, cutting them that slack, in principle, everybody can live everywhere in the country. Kids can go to school together. No, there probably would be religious Muslim schools or religious Jewish schools. I mean, you know, people. But basically, there would be a public educational system. Everything would be normal. I mean, you know, it's very similar in some ways. I don't know, maybe the Canada in a way, the Francophiles and Anglophiles. Um, or, or, or the UK. You know, I mean, even there, it's even more, a little bit more, you know, in Quebec, they have their own parliament. You wouldn't have something like that. In other words, it's kind of a binationalism that that gives you that protection, but you can't see it on the ground in any way. I mean, there's not really no borders. There's no this group or that group or, no, I think you would just see a kind of a normal, like almost, in, you know, I, you can go to... Uh, to Montreal, uh, you notice there's a lot of French signs, and you notice it's, you know, but but you don't, you know, you don't see, I mean, I have friends in Montreal that live in French neighborhoods, and the, the neighbors are, you know, I mean, the, you know, you don't see that principle of binationalism that you have in Quebec necessarily on the ground so much. So you've been talking about the end game, you're sort of explaining that the, the binational state is what you, you think of how likely is that about is that to come about and then let me ask you another question if you step back from that is it dispassionately how do you see this situation developing over the next 10 to 20 years given that we have a political program or without a political program like today well let me let's talk about the political program first how, how likely you think it, it is to succeed 
Uh, and then maybe stepping back and seeing the, the panoply of other forces at play as well. What, what, what do you think is, is going on? Oh, I think on? it has a good chance to succeed. Yeah. If we, in fact, if we adopted it. I mean, if we, meaning a, a, a meaningful chunk of Palestinians and Israelis would, you know, like the ANC in a sense in South Africa. If there would be a movement like that that would accept this and start to advocate for it. I think it could make some real headway. I think people are actually, I mean, both on both sides, I think the people are looking for a way out of this that no one else can offer. Plus, again, I say, you know, we could then mobilize the international civil society. All the tens of thousands of groups that exist and the activists and, the, you know, they're just waiting for their marching orders. And and I think that would release a whole a whole dynamic. So I, I really do. Th I'm, I'm not being Pollyannish. I'm not being some leftist that says, well, you know, let's have a program of revolution and we're going to, you know, I really think that if we really seriously address the fears, concerns of Israelis and Palestinians and look at other models of binational societies and multinational societies and think of how do we, how do we decolonize Zionism? How do we re-Palestinize the, you know, and begin to really develop a detailed program that's true because the devil's in the details um in good faith so everything is up front i think we i i really do seriously think that we could be a political force that could that could really do something again where we are today without that you know israel is simply gonna the the, the apartheid system is gonna get more entrenched and my big fear, and I tell this to my Palestinian partners, is that uh, without an end game, you know, going on for years with nothing really happening, no political horizon, people are going to start drifting away. And I see it already. I see the Palestinian issues getting, you know, the Americans are thinking about Trump. Um for example, a lot of the, you know, they just had a Jewish Voice for Peace conference in the States, which is the largest left-wing Jewish organization. They had 30 featured speakers. Not one was from the Israeli peace camp. You had a number of Palestinians, and you had an Ethiopian Jew, and you have a Mizrahi Jew for those issues. Not one from the Israeli peace in other words, In other words, they're trying to link it. The big word now is intersectionality. So they're linking the Palisade struggle with the black struggle and the women's struggle and this and that, but it has a whole different dynamic to it. It isn't it isn't based on how are we going to resolve the Palestine issue. You know, that's been irrelevant for them as well. And I see the, the Palestinian activists in Europe all are going towards a refugee issue, especially a lot of the Syrian refugees are Palestinians. And Palestine is starting to get sidelined. And that's the big danger, that uh, Israel could win from that point of view, simply because there are more urgent things that emerge all the time that have programs around them. And how long can you keep people, you know, not buying SodaStream, <laughs> you know, or, or BDSing just for some general, I mean, and nothing's happening, nothing's changing. Now Israel's making it harder and harder for activists to get into the country. I, now activists are starting to self-censor themselves. It was just a group of Americans for Peace Now that decided they're not coming to Israel. Well, 
Israel doesn't have to even start to bar leftists anymore. They're barring themselves. I know a lot of activists that are saying, you know, we have a work camp, our committee against house demolitions, rebuilding homes this summer. People are saying to us, well, we don't think we can get in because we support BDS. So we're not even going to try. So, you know, unless we have some organized focus pushback, political pushback, I, I'm not optimistic about the next 20 years or so. Yeah. Is there a critical factor you think that, that uh, could could tip the balance either way? Is there anything in particular or is it just a... I mean, when we talk about it, it's essentially without your program, it's sort of almost like a political malaise. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. It is a political malaise. Is there, is there, a, is there a critical factor that you think would tip the balance? In the game. Okay. That's, I mean, that's the only, yeah. Without end game, the malaise just goes on and on and on. You know, I have this new book now, War Against the People, and uh, and that gets to the whole issue of how does Israel sustain this? You see, and uh, I mean, without getting into depth about that, um, you know, it has to do with security politics, and that is for Israel. The occupation, and you can even ask the question, why didn't Israel accept the two-state solution 30 years ago? I think for Israel, the occupied territories are a laboratory for developing and testing weapon systems, surveillance systems, security systems, policing, models of population control. The matrix of control is exportable. And in fact, you know, you can go country by country, Israel has military security relations and explain how Israel is developed, is delivering for the elites of that country systems of control. And then bigger than that, I put this within the, the framework of global capitalism that's in crisis. And when capitalism goes into crisis as it is, it has to become more and more repressive. And so you have the, the development of what we call, what I call wars against the people, counterinsurgency. Insurgency, counter counter uh, terrorism, asymmetrical wars, low uh, intensity warfare, all these kinds of things, and Israel becomes a go-to place for those kinds of wars because they've been fighting a war against the Palestinian people for a hundred years now. So it's Israel's ability to fill that niche, uh, to fill that niche that that gives it its its international. Um, ability to um, to to um, to keep the pop the occupation going, so that Israel is not only close to the United States and Europe. Israel is close to China. It's the number two arms supplier to China and India, two countries that were always been pro-Palestinian. Israel has a love relationship now with Saudi Arabia. They might open an embassy in Tel Aviv. Last week, Israel had joint military exercises with the Gulf states, the Emirates. Egypt is Israel's best friend, Turkey. So that you see what's, what's allowing Israel to keep the thing going is, I think, this uh, military security police control system that Israel is really, is really one of the, the most efficient at. So that that's another that's another piece of the puzzle, I think, and I call it Israel is globalizing Palestine. You know, Israel over Palestine is a microcosm of the global north over the global south, basically.
That was part two of my discussion with Jeff Halpern, the director of the Israeli Committee Against House Demolition and author of the new book, War Against the People, Israel, the Palestinians and Global Pacification. Join us next time for part two. This podcast was a production of the Human Rights Research and Education Centre at the University of Ottawa. It was produced by me, Dr. Philip Leach No. If you'd like further information or to get in touch, find us on our website at globalizationcafe.com, on Twitter at Cafe Global, or on Facebook, where you'll find updates about forthcoming shows and other research and activities that we're up to.